Okay, so where to um, where to begin? We're here in LA. We've just wrapped the final cut of three videos. Uh, the working title of which, I guess the finished title of which now, which is crazy to say, mm -hmm. When Guys Turn 20. When Guys Turn 20 is based off of a popular meme format that circulates uh, with the top text. People are probably familiar. When Guys Turn 20, they base their entire personality around one of these characters. And it's the Drive, Ryan Gosling character. It's Officer K from Blade Runner, again, Ryan Gosling. Uh, the Joker it's Scarface, uh, Taxi Driver, Patrick Bateman, uh, American Psycho, all of these types of um, hyper-masculine, exaggerated, often revenge movie type characters. So they're, they're aspirational Sigma males, let's say. And so what I wanted was I wanted to animate those memes so that the narrator of the video, who is doing, in most cases, a form of... Um, right-wing counter-messaging that I'm trying to clarify reactionary statements and, and bring them into a further class analysis. I'm trying to redirect an at-risk demographic by speaking to them through the memes that they're familiar with in their feed. That was, the, that was the general pitch, the description for how this was supposed to work. I think that's very present in DKP's market socialism. That's what that story is. Uh, the second episode, the Slow Red Pill is taken from an article I wrote for The Guardian, which is, I think, um, bringing in a new audience and, and, and I'm demonstrating a familiarity with these memes that were not really possible to illustrate in the, the short length of that article. The third video, Platforms, is, I think, the most liberties we've taken, uh, discusses the conflict between platforms and institutions, and features me as Ted Kaczynski, <laughs> which will be maybe, I think, <laughs> maybe evenly weighted within all of the other wacky, controversial figures that make an appearance uh, in this series. <laughs> two, but two Ted Kaczynskis. Two Ted Kaczynskis, young, yeah, and, old. young and old. Yeah. So that's, okay, I think that's my, that's my two-minute pitch for When Guys Turn 20. In this process, we also added in many layers of found footage, of B-roll, of illustrations, of diagrams. And I'm trying to think of where this began. I was thinking about it today on the, the walk over here. I didn't know you walked here. I did. I, I walked, yeah. And, and people gave me looks because it's very unusual in L.A. Everybody drives. Yeah. But I was also dressed as a New Yorker in like a winter jacket and other people are running without shirts. And I was like, this is, I don't belong here. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. But so I was at, I was at Simon's opening uh, and I saw Lauren and Marco. So I forget what we started talking about. They mentioned they had wanted to do some type of video project. And I knew that they were following the work and the research. And that must have been in the summer or maybe in uh, May even. So this is quite a long timeline. Mm -hmm. uh, shortly after that, I started talking to Lauren and then I pitched her this kind of wacky idea of being the meme characters and then speaking through the videos and doing a series of uh, YouTube video lectures. Uh, Lauren asked who I would like to work with for this series of videos. And I had in the back of my head, like, man, you know, I'd really like to work with Jacob, but I don't know if he would be available to do this uh, kind of, you know, dumb YouTube video idea. <laughs> uh, That's but then, all I make. <laughs> and then Lauren suggested you and, and we've been, um, we've been hacking away at it for quite a while now. Yeah. So it feels a little bit unreal to be done. Finally. Yeah. It feels like a... It feels like an immensely long timeline, especially for yeah. a project that the, whose final product is so condensed. 
yeah as these three videos it does feel like we've we really took our time, which I think benefited this project, these three videos. Like development was, it was like a series of conversations over a period of what, like three to five months or something like that before we even met in person. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we did, we did weekly meetings on selecting a number of scripts. We narrowed that down. I think we made the right decision because the three we have is a really strong portfolio of ideas. Mm-hmm. We did a little bit of pre-production and then I guess I came here in September we shot uh, in the last week of September. Uh, yeah, but it's. I think at a certain point, Lauren probably assumed that we had stopped working on the video or weren't doing anything <laughs> because we didn't tell them shit. Like, we didn't tell them anything. And then, yeah, we kind of just said, oh, here's the near final cut last week. Right. And then now we have the actual final cut. And uh, we're going to put it up. When are we recording this? We're in the... The second week of January, we're going to post it in the fourth week of January. So two weeks from now, yeah, these will be online, or at least the first one will be online. We'll see. We'll see. Where we drop go. like a bomb. I think. Uh, well, we also may just get nuked right off of YouTube in the very beginning. Is my other fear. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we spend all this time and money on the videos, and then it's like, and you are now permanently banned. I just. I yeah. I don't know. I've never had an. I have not had enough uh, experience with making controversial content. I think everything I've ever made before has either been protected by an institution that I'm mm-hmm. working with, or been fairly uh, you know, non-controversial in terms of the content, or or been very subtle. I think something like the Seasteaders does broach some edgy and controversial uh, ideas and topics, but. We did it in such a way that was very removed and I think uh, created and communicated these ideas in an extremely subtle way. So I don't think the algorithms or algorithm police ever ever caught on to what was going on there. With these, yeah, it's much more direct, in, visually at least. The fact that you're embodying Elliot Roger is like... <laughs> <laughs> that's like, That seems like somehow so, like illegal, I don't know. Probably not. I mean, definitely not actually, but it just... Maybe just <laughs> Something about it, yeah. It's like against the uh, it's against the spirit of the law, if not the letter. Yes. Of the law. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. Well, there's probably something in the the closed captions or the transcripts that like certain words that might get flagged or something like that. I I generally suspect that YouTube has just kind of cranked down on on recommending videos of political content from accounts that aren't verified in the first place. Mm. So I feel like uh, I would be happy if this video had like high conversion rates relatively low views but reach the audience that it needed to reach which Mm. is i think how we've designed the messaging and everything yeah i mean i'd be happy if it got a lot more views but i'm kind of preparing myself for a limited and targeted reach for these let's let's uh roll back uh two seconds though because you mentioned the seasteaders which was a a video from 2018 i believe yeah we released it in 2018 we shot it in 2017 Shot 2017, released yeah. 2018. Okay. And that was a collaboration with Daniel Keller. Mm-hmm. I think that's where I first saw your work. That's where I first heard about your work. Um, we watched it on the Twitch stream uh, a few months back. Just mm-hmm. had it available viewing for free uh, on disc.art. I think that is uh, hopefully still available. I'm not sure. I also showed it to my class in RISD. And I think that's such a incredibly important film that encapsulates so much at that at that moment and has aged spectacularly well i mean that's basically where i went that the creation of that film is where i went deeper into the ways that ideologies and technologies intersect on a kind of like 
sub level, mm. like way below the surface, you know, the surface meaning also the mainstream narrative around these things. Just seeing the ways that these that these people who, who whose ideological center is Silicon Valley think about the world and how they want to deploy themselves and operate in the world. That was like, oh, this is there's something kind of like ancient and much darker about this than I had mm. ever really suspected mm. before. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that was yeah. the creation of that documentary was a learning experience for me. And you mentioned Daniel Keller. That's he's the one who, who sort of brought me onto that and invited me to do it. And he's also the nexus in several ways. I, the first time I ever encountered you was listening to your interview on new models. Ah, okay. That makes sense. Which yeah. was also a very like eye opening experience for me hearing your thoughts. I believe it was an episode on sort of breaking away from institutions and alternative models of distribution and stuff like that, which yeah. has been inspiring for me to hear. So I was excited when you reached out. I had no idea that that was coming. I was just like, oh, this is just someone I heard on a podcast that I really <laughs> like. I sent that podcast out to several friends of mine when I listened to it. I was like, you have to listen to this guy. Maybe this is a conversation I had with Brad. In 20, I want to say 14, there was a show at Red Bull Studios uh, that was curated by Dis. In hindsight, that was that was kind of the end of the era that the the forces that were pulling apart the New York art world then uh, really ramped up. Things became different after that, but it felt like this was almost like the graduating class of a certain era of the New York young creative art world. And I guess it, at that point, Dis was fulfilling a role uh, or creating a platform or institutional context, rather, that was not properly being supported by museums uh, in the States and institutional interests. And they were able to, like, move things from social media into an institutional context uh, of being Red Bull, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's, that's kind of what they did, is, like, they took artists who could accumulate a following online, could talk about certain ideas, and then put them in the proper celebrated context. Uh, and I feel like there is some kind of a lineage between new models and do not research and, and these other para-institutional spaces that is picking up off of what uh, uh, DIS had done. And there's a bit of a generational difference. There are infrastructural differences, platform differences, because, of course, crowdfunding was not around when, when DIS was uh, launching and, and curating. Yeah, but I feel like uh, it feels like a nice completion of that story to be able to make this video and put it on their platform and to, yeah, I guess, uh, uh, complete the cycle, so to speak. Yeah. Of like creating institutions and uh, a context around creative ideas that are otherwise unsupported by the legacy structures. I mean, I think I'm curious, actually, it feels like at this point, I guess people listening to this will have hopefully seen these videos that we're talking about. One of them on platforms it feels like you sit in a kind of tense space around institutions because that video is actually kind of mourning the loss of these legacy institutions in mm. some way, mourning the breakdown. Whereas the context that I had first encountered you in was almost like a, you know, uh, you know, see you later, goodbye institutions, like we don't need <laughs> you anymore type of context. And maybe that's like shrinking a very nuanced and complex thought you know a system of thoughts down into into attention but i don't know like do you feel mm. do you go back and forth between these emotions of like we need institutions as problematic and as weighted as they are with with like terrible legacies and institutions have actually just been holding us back and we need new models or mm. like i mean it feels like, yeah i don't know yeah that's well okay maybe it's good for us to talk about this too because i feel like uh 
That that video, that argument is, I think, a really um, helpful frame for analyzing what platforms are failing to do for society in the capacity of producing good culture or, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that uh, generally, like, what YouTube has created is a endless like amount of clickbait and uh, softcore porn and prank videos and like just garbage content that is like not enriching or meaningful or, or whatever. Uh, that one is maybe the most dicey because it kind of becomes a celebration of robber barons. Uh, <laughs> but the problem is we do have, we got robber barons now, but they don't make libraries. You I mean, know? Carnegie <laughs> libraries are in like every small town in America. It's They're still crazy. functioning. Yeah. That's the insane thing. Yeah. The frick is still open. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, say a hundred years from now, is there going to be a Bezos anything? I mean, is there going to be, is there going to be an earth left? Maybe there's a Bezos space station, (laughs) you know, that's the extent of it. Yeah. I always sit in a weird middle ground between these things. And I think maybe you feel similarly. So tell me if you agree or or disagree with this, but I feel like I was always uh, anti-institution as a young artist. And I have a very like kill your idols type of uh, mentality and I didn't have reverence for the canon of art. You know what I mean? Like I was a kind of a weird creative person and I made stuff and to pursue that I went to follow a more or less professional career in art. But then I was like unhappy in kind of situating myself in those like hallowed halls of the institution because I didn't care so much about what those people had done before. I I respected it. I enjoyed it. But I didn't... um, I didn't idolize it, Mm -hmm. you know, and I feel like there's some people who really, they just accept the canon and the history that's given to them as, as doctrine. And they, they enjoy the dogmas and the courtesies and displaying deference to ideas that came before you. And my, my general feeling of like the art canon is that there were people a few decades prior that lived in a much more healthier economy. And then they accidentally produced all of these things that became enormously valuable financial assets. And they just happened to be the beneficiaries of like a really great slice of American history. But I don't think that they had a reverence for the canon of their time. I think they just made cool stuff. And so I want to have a society in which people can make cool stuff and not have to be simps for the canon. Mm. Um, but so... <laughs> my, <laughs> My roundabout thing of like how I get back to mourning the institutions is that what was supposed to be the alternate route to a creative career was navigating the platforms, but that has produced terrible content and punishes complicated conversations and then just like shreds the social fabric and, and everything. It also provides pretty much no support to, yes, build, to, that to too. Yeah. build up a savings account or anything like yeah, that for artists, yeah, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So, well, let me throw the conversation or the, the question back to you. Do you feel that the appropriate context for your work is in the institution? Is it in a film festival? Because a lot of the work that you make and, and I guess a lot of the places where it's seen is in uh, the context of platforms or viewership through a screen, through someone's laptop or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I think I went through a similar uh, trajectory. Well, maybe not so similar, actually. I think coming up, basically ever since I decided I wanted to be a filmmaker, whatever that means now, is I, I, I had always, you know, you have a reverence for film festivals you have a reverence for movie theaters and and the midnight movie, I think, which is how certain uh, iconoclastic filmmakers that I idolized mm-hmm. broke out in the seventies, eighties, nineties, and post college, like it's it's been a slow process of like disillusionment about all those structures. They yeah. don't make sense yeah. anymore. Yeah. People aren't going out to movie theaters as much as nearly as much as they used to. Film festivals are not 
these places of cultural churn and and are uh, you know not these places that spark cultural conversations. They're not in any way a nexus of like real change or excitement in the film world. They basically just calcified into these institutional self celebrations mm-hmm. where like famous people go with their movies in order to get distribution deals. Basically. Right. That's okay. So tell me if I'm, I'm wrong here because I'm kind of an outsider to film, but my my sense is that. A film festival is not a cultural institution in the way that like art provides philanthropy, that if you did a project with the new museum, you would get like a small commission on top of it. Mm. But film festivals are kind of these like rent extracting uh, parasites on top of a creative practice where you have to pay to get into it and then you get very little in return. But if you don't get their stamp, you can't get other opportunities down the line. So they're kind of, it's like participating in them is like the cost of doing business, but they don't really benefit you. Absolutely. And not just participating in them. You pay these high fees just to have them look at your film. Yeah. Which 99.999% of submissions don't make it anywhere near the film festival. Right. But they've still paid 50 to to $100 per festival just to have them look at it. Hmm. Yeah, they are rent extractors and... They are ways for the industry. I, I don't. I guess I don't know. There's a lot of study to be done about this, which I have not done, and I don't think that there's been a robust enough criticism of the film festival model. But it is very parasitic, especially on the kind of ambitions of young creative people right, working in right. the film industry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like huge when you have to pay machines. to be in an art show or something like that, and it's exactly yeah. yeah. Very few get in. Many, many, many submit to get in uh, and pay a lot of money to do so, and. I mean, there are in-between spaces like Sundance, I think, has branched out to become an, art, an artist nonprofit that does support up-and-coming filmmakers. They have the Sundance Screenwriters Lab and the Sundance Directors Workshop and various other ways that they actually do try to provide support to the artistic community, but that's incredibly rare. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. you know, that they're like the apex of the film festival and film independent film world. Under them is the long tail, which is like, galaxies long of <laughs> right you can literally set up a, a film festival in your basement you can you and people yeah. do yeah i mean it's 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 just a it's a horrible industry so no i don't i have i feel less and less hopeful about that model of film distribution i don't know what the correct model is everything that's worked for me essentially has been personal relationships yeah just yeah. i happen to be Someone that comes to mind for someone that I know, I get invited on to be a part of a project. And then that work gets me introductions to other people. And like, that's, that's chaos. It means nothing. It's like, (laughs) I can't give advice to anybody around that. Right. I mean, just to wait, just to, sorry, just to answer your question. I think the, the answer ultimately now for any filmmaker is not film festivals. It's not movie theaters. It's not the internet. It's not social media platforms like YouTube. The answer is streaming platforms. Sure. That's the right. only sustainable way ultimately to sustain a career in this mm-hmm. field is to somehow develop a relationship with one of the giants streaming platforms that exist, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's the that's that's maybe the right sequence. Yeah, that there was uh, institutional support, then platforms had a certain promise, the platforms failed. Now we're looking for another potential because streaming and being a precarious freelancer is like so unsustainable that people are just really not able to carry out a career because they can't support themselves. So yeah, 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 no, that's the, uh, that's the reality that we're navigating. 
Okay, let me, well, let me ask you about, you have a new project that you're working on. So thank goodness that we have wrapped our uh, many months of uh, grinding, um, but very rewarding work on this uh, series of videos. And you're now beginning a feature length film for, um, we cannot say. <laughs> a, legacy, uh, but... a, a big legacy, a big legacy media publication that has never produced a feature film before. Yeah. That's... So you're going to, you're going to be very busy from here on out. And, and, uh, what's your timeline for that project? They've given us funding for the next five months to basically research and for me to write and start shooting this, this film. And then, uh, it's yet, you know, then we're going to sort of present to them what we've made in May and they're going to say, thumbs up or thumbs down, uh, to continue to fund the project. Oh, okay. So it's still not 100% that there will be a feature film. At this point, it's either going to be a short film. It's either going to be the best funded short film I've ever made <laughs> or, <laughs> or an underfunded or a low feature. Budget feature film. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. But uh, yeah. hopefully the next year is going yeah. to be the timeline for this project. Wow. Yeah, which wow. is the longest I've ever been employed since college. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's super, it's super exciting. And the, uh, the content, the topics are, are really, really fascinating. Yeah. It's a film. I can, I will, I can say a little bit about what it's about. If you, yeah. And only, only insofar as you can without, you know, violating your agreements or, or whatever, but uh, no, it's about, we had a good conversation about it. Like I guess a few months back. Now. Definitely. Yeah. I showed you an early reel, an early demo reel, very early demo reel actually. Um, and you gave me some really great uh, pointers for where to look, which, which helped evolve my thinking on the project. But it's basically about the ideological ecosystem and history that surrounds virtual reality and the quote-unquote metaverse. For me, it's about looking at this technology like an artifact or a clue to tell us about the ideology of its architects, mm. essentially. You started working on it before the metaverse announcement too yeah. right yeah. yeah which is i guess coincidentally uh, very beneficial but it also means that you had a good analysis and good foresight too <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah it's uh the meta the, the but it was the timing was incredible because when we were pitching to that was the week that facebook made its meta announcement metaverse wow. announcement that was like the week that i met with these people and they were like this is so like this is so perfect for right now go here you go so yeah thank you Thank you, Zach. Uh, really <laughs> please don't, please don't ban us. <laughs> Very much appreciated. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm uh, I, I don't know. I think it's going to be interesting. I've never, it's for me, it's more research than I've ever done, which is difficult. And I feel like putting a strain on me. It feels like I'm back in college in a way. It's like every day I'm reading and writing notes and like doing deep dives into nonfiction and, and big essays and articles and histories and stuff. And it's, uh, it's hurting my brain, but it feels good. It feels like a, a sort of a rejuvenating experience. A little overwhelming, I would say. Do you, when you edit and when you make a, a documentary, a film like that, are you writing a video essay in real time? Like, do you draft a script or do you move intuitively through the found footage? Or, because uh, it feels like, I'm, I'm very new to video, but when I watch your films, there's uh, a real kind of emotional intelligence that just brings you through each of the sentences and transitions and the pairing of background sounds to found footage. And um, it's there's so many uh, sensory layers. How do you envision all that in, in advance if you're working from just a script or or do you begin with a video or where do you where do you start in the whole process? So for, for stuff you've seen before, like the short 
video essay I made on, on the news feed for uh, New York Times. That is something where I have an idea and then I go, I basically, I go into a fugue state online and like I emerge with a script. Somehow. <laughs> I don't know how it happened. Like I just, I start watching stuff and reading stuff and, and cherry picking essentially whatever I need to help me to support this kernel of an idea that I had. And then I have a script. I uh, record voiceover of the script. And then I sit down at my computer and where I'm looking on YouTube and archive.org and Google video and all these different libraries and archives of video for archival footage that can support it. Mm, and yeah, yeah, there's no, it's total, it's total controlled chaos. Uh, one thing that's actually been challenging about this project is that I'm working with a team. It's very much more collaborative than I've ever done before. It's a team of four of us. And it's um, a lot of cooks in the kitchen, a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Typically I'm like a troll in my cave, just doing this stuff all by myself. <laughs> you and I'm me not both. accountable. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's why we, I think that's why we understand each other. We're kind of in the troll cave right now. Actually. We're in the troll cave. This is it. A uh, nicer troll cave than I had in the past. Which is in my last <laughs> true, place. true. Um, one of the most challenging things about making this film is that we're having to sort of build a machine as we design the product of the machine. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. How the film gets made is almost as big of a part of a conversation amongst this team as the film itself. So I'm having to outsource research and rely on other people and rely, you know, bring in experts wow. mm -hmm. and like have tons and tons of conversations about what goes where and what's important and what the ideological framework is going to be and what the process is going to be and how we responsibly source archival footage in all these ways that it's just like, typically I'm just like a complete freak stealing everything online, hoping nobody mm -hmm. catches me mm -hmm. and coming up with something. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, so. the, for me, what was the most fun and the most enticing part of this was like, the actual shooting of the characters themselves. Mm. We brought in, you know, a special effects makeup team, uh, makeup and hair. We did. We brought in, you know, you you did some incredible sourcing of costumes. We brought in a deep, you know, wonderful DP like this this uh, incredible DP Benji who works with huge productions, typically Netflix, etc. We were very spoiled. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were shooting in a garage. That was like one of the <laughs> one of the, one of the uh, between uh, some maintenance that was being done on a tire outside. But <laughs> thankfully, got the work. good audio. Yeah. yeah our sound guy was incredible. I mean, the team was wonderful. I love working with like such a well-oiled kind of like Hollywood style. Uh, if production only my team. acting was at the level of our oh, film stop. production quality. That's oh, stop. <laughs> Your acting was wonderful. <laughs> yeah. We'll let that right in. in. I'm write still, in and let mortified. us know this is a big disagreement between me and josh i think his performance was great uh right on right on point you're, you're too generous you're too generous yeah no I'm, I'm really excited it feels like a very juicy thing it's packed with a lot which i think is yeah. fun and not something i get to do that often there's a lot to chew on on these yeah and there's a lot of there's a lot of layers and uh yeah many facets to it yeah this has been uh an awesome project an awesome experience and a really fun day of editing probably the easiest day of editing uh for this and, and it's really it's great to wrap and and send these things to render where can people find your work uh how can they get in touch you can go to my website jacobhg.com that has a good summary of my work and ways to get in touch with me also uh another project of mine called far off sounds which is a music a web series of documentaries about sort of like weird obscure ecstatic musical subcultures and artists around the world 
that I've been We've thinking. watched a few of these on the Twitch stream also. Cool, yeah. yeah. I've yeah. been peppering them into the program uh, every so often. That's yeah. exciting. I feel I wonder if they're sticking out like a sore thumb. About, I mean, they're so non-ideological in a way. Oh, well, I, I, they I mean, well, the first stream. one we watched was uh, a, a snake-handling pastor. <laughs> so it was, it was very ideological. Everything has yeah. ideology. And then the Russian, the Soviet synths in the uh, <laughs> okay, yeah. aquarium in Detroit. They're, That's they're actually true. quite hard to <laughs> say that. Hard to say a guy with a Stalin yeah. poster is not ideological. I think that's true. Um, yeah. Onyx Ashanti programs himself. It's, that was a fascinating portrait. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you got to see the the so as yet unreleased second. Uh, part oh yeah. Of that. Is there a, is there a timeline for a release? On so that? that's what I was going to say. Yeah, we're actually so a big thing that we're doing. We've we've just been licensed by Means TV, so we're going Far Off Sounds is going to appear on their streaming platform, which is exciting. At the end of January this year, um, and at the same time, we're release we're launching a Patreon. Uh, so we're going to be, we, we've been recording a podcast we've been doing, we've been building up a stockpile of podcast episodes that'll be for patrons only and, uh, bonus video content and unreleased episodes and merch, etc. That's all going to be available through our Patreon. I don't know the link, but our website is faroffsounds.org. We'll put the link in the in the description for the post on this. And uh, just to, to add a little bit of context for if people are not familiar with Means TV, this is, in my understanding, it's, a, it's actually a platform co-op. Uh, a lot of the BreadTube producers are also um, re remediating their content on there. Uh, and then they have a selection of uh, video lecture content, YouTube stuff, documentaries, uh, a, a wealth of stuff. So it's really exciting. And they've been, I think, uh, churning up and, and producing a lot more in the last few years. So, yeah, it's great. It's great context to exhibit your, your work in. Yeah. Yeah. Jacob, thank you so much. This was super fun. And um, check out the links in the description. And, yeah, more again soon. Thanks, man.